I think that these forces of authoritarianism are not going to triumph in the United States the way they did at the end of the 19th century. That said, I think we're going to have a polarized battle over American identity that we have to have because we really only became a democracy properly understood in the 1960s. And the fact that we launched this project to establish a multiracial democracy so recently shouldn't surprise us that we have a polarized politics over it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I really liked getting to know today's guest. He is Sid Milkus, Professor of Governance and Foreign Affairs at the University of Virginia. Sid has a book out called What Happened to the Vital Center, Presidentialism, Populist Revolt, and the Fracturing of America. His book traces the joining of executive power and movement politics and argues for a reconstituted party system rather than greater presidential power. It's an important and probably a new lens through which practitioners might view a lot of the current hazardous developments in our politics. Professor Milkus's career, which we also discussed, is an interesting one as well. You should listen. So after our sponsor, my interview with Professor Sidney Milkus of the University of Virginia. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Sid, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Even though I'm I'm pretty old, I'll, I'll try. I'll try to shorten it. I, so, people people nowadays who are telling me they're old, I look at the, I'm like looking in the mirror and I'm like, uh oh. Yeah, you, you seem very young to me, Nathaniel. So, <laughs> I grew up in Philadelphia um, and went was an undergraduate at Muhlenberg College in, in Allentown. I was first generation college, so it was very exciting for me to go to college. My senior year, I was you know, kind of floundering. I was a very good student, but had, but intellectually engaged, not professionally engaged. So I had no idea. I know I didn't want to go to law school, but one of my favorite professors who really got me interested in American politics, broadly understood, you know, thinking about the foundations of it, suggested, you know, you might go to grad school. And I said, oh, what would I do? <laughs> he said, you could teach. <laughs> Nathaniel, being first generation college, I'd never thought about that. Possibly. I said, well, how would I afford to go? I don't have any money. And he said, they'll give you money <laughs> to study. And that clinched it. So I went to Penn. I always kind of loved Penn growing up in Philly, even though I didn't go there as an undergrad. But it was kind of always the golden ring for me. So I went there and got my PhD. I've taught at a number of different kind of uh, institutions, which I think has been good for me. I started out my career in Indiana. I taught at two small liberal arts colleges out there. Franklin College in Franklin, Indiana, and DePaul in, in Greencastle. And then I missed doing research. 
and I wanted to teach grad students. So I was lucky enough to get a job at Brandeis University outside of Boston. I was there for 13 years, had a great career. But then I, I had this opportunity to move to a what's called a public ivy, you know, a kind of a top, a flagship state university, University of Virginia with a strong foundation and history in the study of politics. So I got the opportunity to come here in 2000, and I've been here for 22 years. That's the way a, a really good career looks in, in political science, right? I think it's a little unusual. Most people don't move from different kinds of institutions like liberal arts to a small research university to a large. But it's usually a sign of success to sort of escalate in the caliber of the university, at least viewed broadly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, you know, I'm very proud of my career. I mean, it felt sometimes like I was climbing a greasy pole, (laughs) 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 but I feel like I've gotten to, you know, um, I've had great experiences in different parts of the country, which has been very good for me and different kinds of institutions. And I think that's helped my teaching. I think I'm much more practiced at teaching than a lot of my colleagues who focus much more on their research than their uh, teaching. I noticed that you picked up a big teaching award. That doesn't come without effort. Whoever's judging you as a teacher, you have to bring something to it to be noticed as, as a good teacher, right? With all due modesty, I've won a lot of awards, but that one meant the most to me because it, it was an award. It's the top award, teaching award the university gives out. And it goes to a, a distinguished, someone who's had an eminent scholar who's demonstrated enduring excellence in undergraduate teaching. And that combination meant, meant a lot to me. And one of the things that's really helped me connect with my students, Nathaniel's on first generation college. So I know what I don't know. <laughs> So I don't preach at my students. I engage them in, in what I hope is a stimulating exchange of ideas. And whereas a lot of my colleagues make a pretty hard line between their research and their teaching, I bring my research ideas into the classroom. And, te- and I like testing them <laughs> with my students talking about these ideas. And, you know, I find I learn as much engaging in conversations with my students over things like polarization or the legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States, as I do in, when I, my work is reviewed by peers. Peer reviews tend to be so, a lot of times, inside baseball, you know, whereas my, the, my students are refreshingly unconcerned about the intramural battles that go on within political science. Uh, and we can talk about things in a really foundational way that you see all too little, I think, Yeah. in, in the extant scholarship. My mom was a high school math teacher and one of these people for whom teaching was a passion and a lover of the subject that she taught and of communicating that to young people. My dad was a professor of English literature, but I grew up with kind of two different perspectives about teaching, both of which saw it as a very honorable thing, but I actually watched my mom teach a lot, you know, go because I went to the same high school, didn't take her, but I watched her teach friends. And I've talked to a lot of people for whom teaching has been like a part of their career or teach for America or something. Do you have a philosophy beyond what you've already articulated about like what makes a good teacher and what makes you want to be a good teacher? It's a really, you know, it's a more complicated question than one would think. I've never been into pedagogy. So, you know, methods of teaching. 
I mean, we have something called a Center for Teaching Excellence here at UVA that sort of schools people and how to engage their students in conversation. And I've I've never been interested in that. What I think makes me a, a good teacher, and I'm very proud, proud to be considered so, and I read my, my student evaluations kind of confirm this, is sort of what I think made your mom a good teacher, is I am extremely passionate about what I study. Rather than trying to leave that aside as I go in the classroom and teach them what some of my colleagues think are appropriate for undergraduates, I go in with the passion I have for writing about the presidency and political parties and social movements and the deep historical roots of contemporary developments. And then I structure it for my students in a way that makes complex ideas accessible to them. And I think that passion for my subject, and also by this stage of my career, with all again, with all due modesty, because I'm aware of my limitations, my knowledge of my subject, that combination really resonates with students. I never preach to my students. I try to, to treat them as young scholars. And I think that they really appreciate that because they, they say in the student evaluations, I treat them with great respect. I, I, a lot of my colleagues are great lecturers, but they're not good listeners. And I think to be a good teacher, particularly of something like politics, I don't know about math, <laughs> but I think of politics, you have to be a good listener. I only took two classes in American politics as an undergraduate, and I believe both of them were with Professor David Mayhew. You oh, were. I know David well. Yeah. And, and, and what I remember from that long ago uh, time is like his ability to go up to the chalkboard, sketch a part of the country, sketch the states, and talk about the political history with so much memory and knowledge. I'd always been someone who had read a lot of biographies of senators or things like that as a kid, but seeing what somebody who was a professional at it, who really was always reading about it and had theories about it was just so different. You know, I think that's a lot of that, it makes a good teacher as well. Yeah, and it makes you comfortable. Yeah, David is extraordinary. You, we, could, we could be saying, David, what's going on in the 15th district in California? And he would be able to give you chapter and verse on that, not only on what's going on now, but what's happened over the last 50 years in that, in that area. Another thing that makes for good teaching is when you really feel a command of your subject, it helps you relax and it helps you take hard questions and comments from your students with more enthusiasm, you know? I mean, when I was in the early part of my career, when I wasn't so much on top of my subject, I get a little nervous when students would challenge me. But now I relish it. And, and it took me about five years to really feel that way about my teaching. That resonates. I want to go back to that, that beginning. So Muhlenberg College, you said you had kind of an intellectual, but not a professional interest, right, in college. Why do you think this subject became the core intellectual interest? It's a, it's a little bit of a mystery. When I was, um, from the time I was very young, I really loved reading about history in a way that was extremely unusual. <laughs> I, mean, I love sports and I go to the sports page first before I read anything else. But I also love history. And from the time I was like seven years old, I was reading pretty serious history books, which was unusual for a first generation college kid. But I had some some aunt who really appreciated my interest in history and would give me different books to read 
all the time about the revolution. And, and so, so when I went to college, I thought I'd be a history major. And I took a number of history classes and I found them interesting, but not exciting. And it's a caricature, but it seemed like one thing happened after another. And then I said, well, let me try a political science class. And I took a political science class. And what I loved about it was the foundational themes of politics, individual freedom versus the community, the meaning of the declaration and its role in, 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 in the development of American democracy, how we get reform in a country which seems so raped against fundamental change in politics. And, and also I was in my, my political science class, I was introduced to the philosophical roots of American politics and regimes like American politics. And so I loved reading Locke and Rousseau, Montesquieu. And so that kind of thematic philosophical approach, which included a study of history, but uh, really tried to, how shall I put this, interrogate history. I found that extremely exciting. As you think about your life, there there have been certain almost divine interventions, guardian angels. And I just had this one amazing teacher, Charles Bednar, who, who was the guy who told me I could go to grad school. Maybe I learned a little bit of my teaching style from watching him because he, he was a very gifted teacher and he'd come in and challenge us. Never lecture, hardly ever lecture, come in and challenge us. And he really piqued my interest in politics deeply understood. And one of the um, things I feel most good about, about my philanthropy is when I went back to Muhlenberg, they invited me back for a talk. And when I was there, I asked them, what happened to that political science prize? That I had won the, the political science prize there as the best political science student. It's given in the fourth year. And they said, well, we ran out of money. So I said, I want to fund that. <laughs> so I restarted that and I provide the money for it. And I called it the Charles Bedner Prize. And they said, well, you're going to have to ask him before we, we set this up because he'll probably be honored, but he's a kind of reserved. So I got in touch with him and he was really touched by it. And he was a pretty stern uh, taskmaster, but I could tell he was moved. And I tell you, to this day, it's one of the things that I feel best about that I, I started that prize. It's it's lovely to be able to close a circle like that in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way. That's a love. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I felt like I closed closed the circle. They wanted to name it the Sydney Milkus Prize, and I said nah, that would make me feel like I've died. <laughs> it would feel like an epitaph. So I said, but here's my idea. Yeah, that's a good one. A lot of young people who take an intense interest in politics go down a different road which is as a practitioner. A majority of my guests on this podcast are such people, ranging from activists to party operatives to electeds. There's quite a divergence, usually, not in every case, between someone who takes that academic professorial path and somebody who gets into the arena in an operative sort of way. Did you ever consider that? Have you had activity like that or why didn't you? I have had some activity. In fact, I have to confess that when I was in the Midwest in Indiana, I felt a little isolated. I was a too small liberal arts colleges. And I, um, and I began to think, and it was not easy to move to a different kind of school. And I began to think about alternatives. And one of those was to play some role in politics. And I interviewed for a job in Senator Moynihan's office which I was pretty excited about until I heard what the job was, which was to write books for him, <laughs> that he wanted to write a couple of books, but he wanted a ghostwriter, apparently. 
which surprised me because I thought he was a pretty intellectual guy. Yeah, but it, but these senators are busy, and usually They're when busy. they write, they have help. I, I knew a guy who was an archivist for him. Sounded like a good fit for that person, but yeah. Yeah, so I didn't get that job. Probably wasn't that enthusiastic about doing that. So I didn't get that job, and I was still thinking about those kind of things, and then I got the job at Brandeis, and that was such a fantastic move for me because it was a small research university where I could take my skills as a teacher of the liberal arts and, and satisfy, fulfill my ambition to teach graduate students and, and publish more. So from, from that time on, I really didn't think about a political career, but from, I have gotten involved in politics from time to time. For example, I was an expert witness in the McCain-Feingold case, the famous campaign finance case. My expertise in political parties was deployed by an odd coalition of labor unions uh, and the Republican Party who were against the uh, reform because it would take what, what the, uh, that, if you remember what that case was about, was so-called soft money, unregulated money, that political parties uh, were able to uh, expend. A lot of contributions could be funneled through political parties and they would have a major role in campaigns. And I supported that because if you've read any of my work, I believe in, in that political parties are important mediating organizations that when they work right can transfer individual preference to, to political principle. We lost that case. It was a 5-4 decision in the Supreme Court. But I'll tell you, it was so exciting for me to be actually involved in a real case. And I was cited in the appellate decision, not in the Supreme Court. Uh, court decision. And I think I've been vindicated because I was worried about what the weakening of party organizations would do, whether this would open up the process to people who, uh, as, as Alexander Hamilton put it, would um, flatter the people's prejudices only to betray their interests. Somebody like Donald Trump. Nobody could imagine Donald Trump in, in all particulars, but I knew somebody like him would be a danger. So I did do that. And that was really, that was quite exciting to me. But I never went into politics because I love the study of politics. I have great respect for the practice of politics. And unlike a lot of my colleagues, I really study. <laughs> I don't have just theories, rational choice theories. I actually study politics. All my work is informed by deep study of politics through primary documents and also interviews. The kind of stuff you do is, is <laughs> in your podcast are things I really enjoy doing and learn a lot from. Tell me a little bit about that time at University of Pennsylvania, getting the PhD itself. It's a continuation of undergraduate study, but it's a different kind of work. Now you're all focused on one subject and it starts to be about some of those intramural questions that you mentioned before. Who were key professors for you and how did you sort of pick the subfields that you end up um, mastering? Like most things in my life, the answer to that question is more, more complicated than it should be. So, so I just went through the graduate, I'm on the graduate uh, admissions committee and in the application, they have to tell us what, what they want to study, who they're going to study with. They're almost specialized before they enter. I didn't, I didn't enter Penn with that kind of uh, specialty in mind. I had a deep interest in political theory. Um, and so I knew that that was one field I wanted to study. And I had a great professor at Penn named Mark Blitz, who's since moved to California and teaches at Claremont McKenna College uh, right now. He was just an amazing teacher. And, and I was a TA for him. And that's where I, I, I further honed <laughs> my teaching skills is watching him, you know, engage like 250 students about, about Aristotle and Plato 
<laughs> laughing. And so, and I would go in and teach the discussion questions, and oh, it was just, it was just really exciting. Even though I loved the study of political theory, I was interested in how they played out in politics, and I think that's what's distinguished my work is this effort to figure out the role of ideas in politics. A lot of people think politics is just interests. I don't believe that. I think ideas and principles have a role in politics. And so I also study comparative politics. It's an interesting story that I teach American politics. I'm a scholar, but I didn't study it as a field in grad school. I studied comparative and political theory, although America was one of my cases. And my primary interest in comparative politics was the comparative study of political parties. And the way I came to focus more on political parties in the United States is I always thought that they were incredibly boring. At that time, when I was in grad school, they were both catch-all parties, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And as a, somebody who studied kind of radical political philosophy, one of my favorite sub, uh, authors was Herbert Marcuse, who, who was part of um, a kind of radical neo-Marxist trend in the 1960s and 19. I always thought American politics was incredibly pedestrian. But when I found out, Nathaniel, how different it was, how weird it was compared to Britain and France, I got very excited about studying it more. So by my dissertation, I'd moved on. And what uh, was the dissertation? I did my dissertation on, on the New Deal, in particular, its influence on the party system and how it, it, it transformed a party system that was pretty much a, a party system dedicated to consensus both parties were kind of catch-all parties that had both moderate and more ideological wings into a, a politics framed by competition between liberalism and conservatism. And as part of that transformation, the presidency became really central to party politics, where before the New Deal, party politics was dominated by state and local party organizations. What do you think people least understand about the difference between parties now and parties past in the United States. Because what my sense is that the time horizon of most activists and politicians and operatives, those people I was talking about earlier, in their understanding of our system is extremely short. And they don't know, especially if I ask people about sort of this responsible party theory, the kind of things that you kind of uh, hold in high regard. There's so much skepticism about parties. The parties have been so disintermediated, I guess. That's a great way of putting it. Excellent. Putting it. Yeah. I don't think people much understand that there, there was a different way that things were operating. That's really a great question, a great point. Um, I think people have a vague... Um, uh, understanding of past parties as organizations that prevent, pre prevent reform, um, that force uh, compromises, that sustain things like racism and, and, and imperialism. A very negative view on A very parties. negative yeah. view of parties. Because when you think of most activists who, who really um, come out, I mean, I mean, this kind of social activism on the right or the left, really comes out of the 60s, which unleashes this kind of movement politics. And part of that movement politics was to hollow out political parties and to turn partisanship over to the presidency and social activists. And, you know, you know, that partisanship now is this alliance. It's an uneasy alliance a lot of times between uh, the executive branch and social activists. And think about that. That's 
that's a winner-take-all kind of politics, right? That doesn't lend itself to the same kind of compromises that those uh, more decentralized catch-all parties felt. So I think that's the view uh, activists have. They, they don't appreciate that for all the faults of these parties, they helped create some kind of, uh, how did Madison put it, a, a filtering process that would protect us from the excesses of democracy and demagogues who could exploit those excesses. And for people, there's another branch of people who call themselves realists. <laughs> they dislike polarization very much. And they view that period of, of um, when, when parties were, were less hollowed out and did play a more mediating role as a golden age of American politics. And to me, that doesn't recognize the weakness of that system, how it did perpetuate. When you think of the parties being at their strongest, that was maybe at the end of the 19th century uh, through the 1960s. We had a system of Jim Crow uh, that the parties were indifferent to, which, you know, they were, there was this like Faustian bargain that was struck at the end of the 19th century to, to set issues of civil rights aside. So I think those are two views of parties. One of the things I've tried to show in my writing is how they played this important mediating role, uh, how they uh, they would take a, what was really a very large and diverse society uh, and and um, and frame politics in such a way that that people felt that they they had some understanding of it and could and could participate in it effectively. I don't feel like people have clarity about that what is a party. And I remember vaguely like the distinctions being made between the party and the electorate, party as organization. Parties as is government. Yeah. Parties and government. Yeah, that's V.O. Key's famous tripartite view of parties. Yeah. So a lot of times if I'm talking to someone who's currently running a interest group or running part of a, a party organization, they, you know, I'll have a conversation where where I'll suggest to them that the party is the whole progressive ecosystem in that state, not just the state Democratic Party and the county Democratic parties or whatever, because I think it is this coalition and it is the people also who are adherents or loyalists or whatever. But I'm not thinking very theoretically about that. And I don't think they are. When you're talking about a, a party, what, what are you meaning? Yeah, I mean, um, in the broadest sense, uh, a collective organization, and which does involve uh, building a coalition that stands for a set of principles uh, uh, about um, what it means to be an American, <laughs> what the United States is, what is the common good. Now, um, uh, um, a lot of times that vision will be compromised somewhat by the commitment of parties to win elections, that parties, unlike social movements, try to mediate the battle of ideas in American politics to the practical tasks of getting elected and, and governing. So parties are these collective organizations that seek to translate some essential principles that the party is committed to into electoral success and effective governance. And in that way, they're, for example, they're very different than social movements. The job of social movements, and you were talking about activists before, is to disrupt, is to perfect society. And they're extremely important in American politics and bringing to, to light sins like Jim, like Jim Crow 
uh, in the United States, or, or corporate monopolization that exploits workers and abuses consumers. If those ideas they're committed to don't in some way get mediated, so someone who's reasonably sympathetic to him gets elected and can bring about policies to support it. I think of Lyndon Johnson's relationship with Martin Luther King. Uh, without Martin Luther King, we don't get the disruption in society where there's some possibility to pass reform. But without Lyndon Johnson, you don't get the 64 and 1965 uh, civil, civil rights acts that, that were so central to freeing us from Jim Crow, really turned us in, into a democracy. I wonder how you see the particular case of Bernie Sanders, where he's outside the parties in some respects, running as an independent. He is clearly responsible for part of changing the definition of the Democratic Party, moving it by the way he ran for president, by what he said. He also has been like not much less a Democrat in his loyalties than most senators. If he lost a primary, he does get behind the nominee of the party who defeated him in, in Hillary or in Biden. He has a very pragmatic side as well as a populist side. Like, How do you think of his case in this whole context of your theory of, about? Yeah, I, I, think he, I think Bernie Sanders is really a fascinating and, and an important actor in American politics. To me, Bernie Sanders is the poster child for a development whereby parties have been hollowed out, but that's given the opportunity to people who were very partisan progressives and will even call themselves democratic socialists to have a role in party politics. And one thing that's facilitated that, Nathaniel, is the primary system. This is relatively new. <laughs> you were talking about people who have a short memory about American politics. They think we've always... They don't know that we once had these national conventions uh, so that somebody like Bernie Sanders would have a prayer to compete with somebody like Hillary Clinton for the nomination of the presidency. So he's an example of someone who's been able to take advantage of this situation where we have very weak party organizations and a kind of plebiscitory primary uh, system to have an important, as you were saying, have a really important effect in American politics and to move the Democratic, to play an important role, he and his movement, he's almost a leader of a movement more than a traditional party politician. He's moved the, the Democratic Party to a much more progressive position. And that was really demonstrated. If you think about the differences between 2016 and 2020, he did, you know, grudgingly support Hillary Clinton. He didn't support, but it was really grudging. And the, and the fr I went to the 2016 convention and the friction between the Clinton and the Sanders supporters was palpable. And I think it weakened Hillary Clinton's election. But Biden, to his credit, saw the importance of Bernie Sanders and sort of formed this unity pact with him and and helped and made Sanders and also Elizabeth Warren an important part of the development of the Democratic platform. Sanders has, uh, I think, been very supportive of Biden, not uncritical, and I think has played an important role in holding, so to speak, for better and worse, maybe Biden's feet to the fire in pushing progressive policies. And a lot of policies that they both end up supporting, but probably maybe Biden wouldn't have incorporated. No, on his own, no. Ended yeah. up in, in his big bills. Yeah. People always ask me, Nathaniel, well, what's the importance of social movements? Said you're always writing about them, but you, you haven't really told us exactly why. That's why they're important. They pose challenges to politics as it is. 
in a way that would not happen without them. And then the question becomes, well, is it possible to form an alliance with somebody like Joe Biden so that these ideas, not unfiltered, but do come to have a role in America? I mean, the, the policies that Biden are pushing are much more progressive than those of Barack Obama, although we think of Barack Obama as a more progressive politician than Joe Biden. But why is that? I think it has a lot to do with people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and the movements that they represent. Yeah. I remember reading about the Senate through the 50s and the 60s and how each election, if I remember, you sort of get new members who are more willing to be show horses, maybe to, to to speak out directly, to not defer to longtime committee heads. Seems like there's been a kind of ongoing process of th- the way politicians carry themselves changing as the party system's changing. Do you see that? And how does that play into the story of where we are now? Yeah, I think politics in the Senate have become much more performative than, than legislative. And of course, the media has played an important role in this, but also the weakening of of the institutional fabric of party organizations and the Congress have cultivated this this, uh, politics that's, uh, of course, legislation is made. There are still workhorses in the Senate, but a lot of uh, senatorial politics now has to do with battles uh, over cultural issues that lend itself to a, a kind of show horse. But I think that's like John Kennedy was considered a show horse and probably he, he, Hubert yeah, Humphrey. Or, yeah. yeah, John Kennedy had no interest in, in, in legislating. Uh, his, his, and, you know, a lot of senators, you, you see this, uh, you saw this after the 2016 election, election with people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. What do I do about this Trump guy? <laughs> this is, but they wanted, they wanted, they said, well, maybe this will help us pursue our presidential ambitions in 2024. So they were very reluctant to go after Trump, knowing that the base was very supportive of him. So a lot of senatorial politics goes on with the senator's eyes on the presidency. I think everybody in the Senate thinks they should be president. Or at least have attention. Like some, I've, I've, the joke that was around, like, what's the most dangerous place in American politics between Chuck Schumer and a microphone? Or- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things that um, has has really, I, I think, weakened the Senate as a legislative body is the routine use of the filibuster. So that that's made legislation so much more difficult, and really takes away a lot of the incentive to be a, a workhorse. Also, the weakening of the committee system that's happened, particularly since the nineteen seventies, because they really were the they're really the forums where the workhorses do their job. Right. But they were also the forms where legislation would get bottled up that people wanted Absolutely. out. Right. There were reasons yeah. to, to... The reasons to weaken. Yeah. 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 The question is, you know, when you've got these obstacles, you know, politics, I think we go back to, to, to James Madison. You know, everybody quotes James Madison, the importance of institutions, checks and balance. But those in and of themselves don't cultivate an active and competent citizenry or enable the government to deal with problems that must be addressed. Uh, and so I've never been a, a, a great believer in the original <laughs> constitution in that sense, non-originalist. I want to make sure I ask you about the particular case of Donald Trump, right? I mean, I'm sure 
there's no there's it's hardly a pleasant conversation to there's, this there's hardly a conversation that's taken place in the families across the country for seven or eight years that hasn't involved him. I want to know how you thought about him as he came up, as he contended and won the nomination, as he started to govern. My own feeling early on was trying to figure out how much do I have to worry about this guy? Is he really playing the authoritarian playbook? Is he going to have any success in our system in overthrowing these norms and really fundamentally changing the way a president operates? And he was so flawed that he wasn't very good at some of what he was trying to do. He's been enormously consequential, I think, almost entirely, unfortunately. And then January 6th, the big lie, the refusal to accept the election just seems to me like a high sin against democracy. The highest sin, I think. Some people will say... Ah, uh, he, you know, and there's so much continuity. He was another Republican. A lot of things he enacted fit with that model. And then other people view him in the worst light. It's a fascinating question. I have to say that Donald Trump, although I do think I agree with you, Nathaniel, that he committed the highest sin. I mean, you can't have a republic if people don't accept a peaceful transfer of power. But I find him fascinating. And he's really up the game in my field. Like the presidency has always been an important field, but my goodness. So I always say he's terrible for the Republic, but he's great for business. <laughs> I was on, on a panel in early 2017. We were having a friendly argument about what kind of president he'd likely, he was likely to be. And everybody viewed him as potentially dangerous. But a lot of my colleagues said the Madisonian system would save us, that American politics has this complex system of checks and balances, a separation and division of powers. And that's going to ensnare Donald Trump. And he's a cult of personality who will have an ephemeral effect on American politics. In contrast to that argument, for the last three decades, I've been worried about the dangers of what, uh, of, uh, what deserves to be called a presidential democracy, that um, uh, the presidency has become the center of politics and government in the United States in a way that has weakened the constraining influences of the so-called Madisonian system. And um, even, uh, you know, I have great admiration for Barack Obama, but I was worried about his use of unilateral executive power to advance causes like immigration rights, which I support through executive action when he couldn't get it, uh, couldn't get any legislation through after, particularly after 2010. I've been worried for years about the expansion of presidential power in domestic and foreign affairs. For example, we haven't declared war since World War II, and yet we've been in almost constant war since that point. So I said, this is a system ripe for a demagogue to have influence on, on American politics. Now, did I think we were going to have an insurrection? No. I did think that Donald Trump, uh, particularly since he had a primordial relationship with the Republican base, was, was going to pose a great threat to the norms and institutions of American politics. And I also was, was afraid, because I talked to his transition team as part of the, my role as a fellow at the Miller Center, which is a, a center of public affairs. We talked to transition teams, whether or not we agree with their politics. And they were deeply interested in about how you do things through executive action, because they wanted to pursue things like protectionism and immigration restrictions, issues over which the Republican Party was still was still divided. 
there is a sense in which Donald Trump is a symptom that this base that he's tapped into has been cultivated since the Nixon presidency. And a lot of the issues that Donald Trump has exploited begin in the 60s, law and order, the role of parents in schools and things, all those things begin uh, in, in the 60s. I really think it's important that even though we see there are some developments that set the stage for him, that we don't normalize him. You can be critical of people like uh, Nixon and Reagan. Oh, my God. Reagan went to Philadelphia, Mississippi to start his 1980 campaign. Nixon resigned <laughs> the presidency willingly when Barry Goldwater told him he didn't have any support. Could you imagine? There's no way Donald Trump would do that. I think he is a, a, a demagogue, an unprecedented demagogue in American politics, the most dangerous president we've had. But he was able to exploit long-term developments, particularly those which focus the eyes on the nation, on the president, as the, uh, the embodiment of American democracy. Do you think that the lessons of his presidency for other aspiring Republican presidents the DeSantis's and the Hollies, who kind of learned about how you have a Twitter connection to the populace. Or, I mean, Trump could move public opinion, and hit, at least among his people, uh, by repeatedly marketing an idea, repeatedly stating something over and over. It was kind of a lesson, I think, if it had been Franklin Roosevelt repeatedly advocating for something, a wholly different set of people would have been pissed off or would have supported it. Trump showed a skill set that had consequence and that people are learning from. Do you think that, that there was enough negative learned about that, that people will shy away from it? Or do you think that is a DeSantis going to be one step further if we get him as president? How do you, how do you think about that? I, you know, I thought um, when when Trump was first elected that um, that one of the things that might be positive about it it was that it would show us how liberal norms and institutions had been greatly weakened, things like political parties. And I thought it would be a good object lesson for us, and people would focus on the weaknesses of the Madisonian system and try and strengthen it. That didn't happen. Maybe the opposite. <laughs> maybe, maybe the opposite happened. Not only did Trump come to, you know, capture the Republican Party? And one thing you, you mentioned before, a lot of people thought he was a ineffective, a bumbler, you know, just a cult of personality. Well, he had some pretty smart people with him who helped him systematically take over every state Republican Party in the country. He was very focused. He was very focused on the politics in a way that Clinton and Obama neglected. Per perfectly put, yeah. He felt that the capture of the party meant something. Obama set up a, an organization, Organizing for America, as a parallel institution to the party, something you would. So, so I, I think uh, the Republican Party is now a Trump party. And even though Trump's star is diminished for reasons we could talk about, Trumpism has, is dominating the Republican Party. And DeSantis, in politics and policy, is a Trump acolyte. Uh, he's more Trump. I think he's copying him and raising the game. What he's doing to the public schools and the public universities in Florida, I don't think Trump would go after those institutions in the way he has. He's trying to remake this honors college in Florida 
uh, New College. I'm on the graduate admissions committee. We just got some excellent applications from that school. They're trying to remake it as a conservative institution that will espouse a, a view of America as a Christian nation. So um, to me, uh, DeSantos is more dangerous than Trump. More dangerous. He's smoother. He's learned the lessons uh, of Trump. And I think that's true of most of the Republicans in, in the Congress as well. Uh, and it shows you why uh, the most radical of Trumpists were able to hold Kevin McCarthy hostage for 15 ballots and to get him to change rules in such a way. I said before, politics has become performative. Nathaniel, we have not seen anything yet. Where do we see what happens over the next two years? How has that affected how you teach? I think it was a conversation I had with Jeffrey Tulis at the University oh, of Texas, yeah. who, my good friends. who yeah. actually informed, you know, his book, Rhetorical Presidency, informed a lot of how I think about the changes in the presidency over time and just how much more it's it's changed into a platform for campaigning all the time. I think it was him that told me he changed how he taught over his concern around Trump. When you are steeped in the history of the country and you kind of revere certain things about it and somebody is threatening some of the core principles, you, it seems like you want to get out and defend them in a different way. It's posed a great challenge for teaching. In some ways, it hasn't required a great adjustment on my part because I've been warning about somebody like Trump for three decades. And so now my students listen to me <laughs> <laughs> when I warn them about presidential power. But it has caused me to change in two ways. One, I'm much more attentive to what I would call Nathaniel the signposts that would help us understand how we got Trump better. So I spend a lot more time on Reconstruction now when I teach the presidency than I used to. And I draw out parallels, as Jeff Toulis has, between Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump and talk a lot more about things like the first Make America Great movement, which was in the 1930s with the poster child of Charles Lindbergh, which was a neo-isolationist, violently anti-Semitic kind of organization, showing that Donald Trump is not a complete uh, is, is, there's, is not a complete novelty in, in American politics. There's, there's been these dangerous signs before. Um, but And the other thing, just to, um, to get to your point about what you do about partisanship, I say the first day where some of these conversations we're going to have, particularly about Donald Trump, are difficult. And I want to have this difficult conversation. All I do, all I ask is that you remain civil, that we talk about how consequential Donald Trump is, whether or not you think Donald Trump is, is a good or evil thing. As part of that, Nathaniel, I mean, a lot of people say, well, it's time. I got, I've got to give up my, my impartiality. Is, I've just got to point out how dangerous Donald Trump is. I do do that. But also, we have to understand why he's been so important. I think we have to look at Trump's supporters and ask ourselves why they support him. Is it just because they're racist? I don't think so. Most of my colleagues wouldn't get off the turnpike between Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. If you do, when you stop in a place like Scranton, you can begin to see how somebody like Donald Trump can tap in to a very important part of, of current contemporary American politics and society. Did, did you see the uh, recent book, Civil War by Other Means, Jeremy Surrey? Out of, he's a historian. I know Jeremy, yeah, but I haven't read that book yet. He, I mean, it's the book is about uh, post from Lincoln's assassination to Garfield's assassination. And and you know that history well. And 
and the sort of failed effort to reform the South and the retreat from that, I guess, because of politics, basically. He also makes that connection between Johnson and Trump and says that we never won the peace in the Civil War and the Civil War has been a continuing threat. And you earlier mentioned Jim Crow and stuff. How much do you see the the Trump problem, the right-wing authoritarian problem as a continuation of what we had to fight in the in the 19th century? Yeah, I, I think there's a continuation, but I, I think you have to take in account what happened in, in the 1960s, which is much more proximate to figure out Trump. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to figure out that race has always been the most dangerous fault line in American politics, going back to the Constitutional Convention. And and the two times in our history where we've really tried to push forward in establishing a multi-racial democracy, which is a very hard thing to do. <laughs> the two times we tried to do that, the Civil War and the Civil War amendments afterwards and Reconstruction and the 1960s, it's not surprising there's been a substantial reaction to that. We sometimes refer to what happened in the 60s, Nathaniel, as the second Reconstruction. Here we go again. Let's try this again. It's the reaction to that that I think brings us Donald Trump. And a way is more dangerous than Andrew Johnson because the presidency is much more powerful. than well, Andrew Johnson got him. Although he inherited a lot of power from Lincoln that hadn't been used before. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. He inherited it, but the Congress felt that power should be taken away once the Civil War. And they really, so, and they and sent they, to they it. Laid it. They laid it on him. Yeah. Um, but not before he, he really had launched an effort that really grew in the South to resist. But I think one thing that is different is we is we've had there's been a massive change in demographics in the United States. This begins in the 60s, so we're a much more diverse society we we once were. And also we had a nice discussion about Bernie Sanders before. Progressivism is much more powerful now than it was at the end of the 19th century. So I don't think we're going to have another compromise of 1877 where we set issues of who's an American aside, I think that these forces of authoritarianism are not going to triumph in the United States the way they did at the end of the 19th century. That said, I think we're going to have a polarized battle over American identity. I've been a little more reluctant than a lot of my colleagues to dismiss polarization. We talked about this before, to think about the 1950s as a golden People talk about Eisenhower now in such glowing terms. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little unsettling. I think he was a decent man who did some decent things, but he also tolerated some problems that, that festered into the 1960s. We're having struggles over American identity now that we have to have because we really only became a democracy properly understood in the 1960s. And the fact that we launched this project to establish a multiracial democracy so recently shouldn't surprise us that we, we have a polarized politics over it. I think your most recent book is What Happened to the Vital Center. It is, yeah. yeah. Which I re read recently. A lot of the themes in that are, are things that we've been talking about. For people who haven't read that book, what was your purpose in putting that together and what are you saying? To be candid, you talked about how Trump changed me. The motivation to write that book was the rise of Donald Trump. And it started out as I was asked to give a lecture on the 2016 campaign at my alma mater, Muhlenberg College, and I decided to call it What Happened to the Vital Center, and I kind of worked out some of these ideas where I tried to explain how we got Donald Trump. 
It was a pretty complex lecture, but I'm pretty good at making complex ideas understandable. I sent a text to my my best grad student, Nick Jacobs, who's the co-author of this book. He said, damn, Sid, this is a good lecture. I don't know if the students at Mueller are understandable. I'm going to write a book about it. So the, the two basic points I wanted to make, and these are things, Daniel, I've been thinking about for three three decades. Two factors uh, come together that lead to what what is, is called the, the, the Cold Civil War in American politics, which got pretty hot on January 6th, but it's still so far. It's still raging. It's still rage. Right? If a cold thing can rage, yes. <laughs> yeah, cold. It's, I guess it's still freezing. It doesn't mean necessarily hot, right? Yeah. So I pointed to two developments that came together after the 1960s. One was the expansion of the presidency in the 1930s. So we developed, for all intents and purposes, a presidential democracy. The other thing was the insurgency which culminates with somebody, people like Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump and the movements um, that, that grew out of the 1960s to establish a participatory democracy in the United States, to weaken the mediating institutions, to sweep them off the stage in America. So we had more direct connection between our representatives and the people with a capital P. And the destination of those reforms was the McGovern-Fraser reforms of the 1970s, which weakened the party convention, which had been in place since the 1830s, where you had some kind of a peer review of the presidential selection uh, into this plebiscitory media-driven system of primaries and open caucuses that that, uh, opened uh, politics to insurgents. And people who ran for the presidency had to put together a personal coalition to serve their ambition. Uh, And the combination of that insurgency uh, and a powerful presidency is, is a really combustible one. I thought that those two in- ingredients of our current polarization had not been s- sufficiently attended to uh, by, by uh, scholars. One of, one of the reasons is that people who study parties in the presidency tend to focus on the parties <laughs> or the presidency and don't see the really important combustible relationship between those two. So I thought the presidency was was dangerous the way it came out of the New Deal. But for a while, there was this ethos, this understanding that the president was the steward of the public welfare, as Theodore Roosevelt put it, and should stand above somewhat partisanship, particularly with the Cold War, we saw this, uh, and moderate partisan conflict. But after the 60s, the movement politics, the emergence of these powerful culture issues, the routine fighting over who we are uh, as Americans, the presidency was pulled in to the vortex of partisanship, and came to be viewed as a weapon by activists and party loyalists to, to, to achieve their objectives. I've been writing articles about it, giving talks on it, but I wanted to put together a whole-scale book and really provide the deep historical foundation for it. Well, one thing I took away from it was this notion that we need to be able to battle and settle political conflict in the middle of institutions and norms that still hold us together and and not have to have a maximalist view of every issue. And it has to go into hundred percent our way in a country of 350 plus million people. You're a good reader. (laughs) I'd love to have you in class. (laughs) class Actually, I always struggled to, to (laughs) read a book and, and synthesize the points of it. It's, I think it's a real skill that, that is a tough one. Well, you've just done it. If you want to come back and do your dissertation with me, I'd love to have you. (laughs) 
So yeah, the vital center is not splitting of the difference. The vital center is one of where there's significant differences between the parties. Between you know, there's important differences between liberalism and conservatism. They have very different views of, of what America of what America is. Uh, but it is what why it's so that's what makes it vital. But what what makes it a center is as you just put it very well, Nathaniel. There's some common ground on which this battle takes place, so that. You don't have a situation, which I fear we have now, where each party views the other as an existential threat to their way of life. That the difference is not just over principle, but over the very intentions of, 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 of the opposition. But that's a delicate balance to form. How do you, how do you disagree on principle uh, and still hold the common ground? The answer to that question, uh, which Lincoln pointed out, was the Declaration of Independence that all of us believe in these principles. We just have different ideas about how those principles should be served. Well, when that battle was being fought in the South in the 1870s and 80s, it went to violence, right? Like it went to actual lynchings and elected officials being hauled out of their houses and tortured. That could happen again, right? It, it, it could happen again. As a scholar, my understanding of American politics is we've had terrible things happen. We have slavery and Jim Crow, but we have been able to make progress. <laughs> These horrible things you were just mentioning have always been contested right from the beginning. And I think the contest for a long time went against the forces of progress when it came to establishing a multiracial democracy. But I think the forces of progress since the 1960s, the civil rights movements were extremely important and powerful. And now there's a number of other movements that have formed a kind of coalition, a progressive coalition that's pretty darn effective climate change. We still do have violence. You mentioned the insurrection before, police violence. But those things cannot dominate American politics the way they could at the end of the 19th century, for example. One of the things I attract to some degree is the professionalization of movements, mm. right? And Fascinating. And, yeah. and, and so the groups like Sunrise Movement or there's a whole, you know, pick the area. There are actual people who are funded, who study, who work on the tactics of pushing their movement forward makes all the sense in the world that you would, right? But that is almost always outside of the party system. Some of these groups are more pragmatic than others. Some are more into direct action, whatever. How do you fit that into the picture? Yeah, I think the most powerful social movements are the ones that have two arms. <laughs> they have an arm that can disrupt and they can have an arm that can effectively work within the councils of power. They have they can work on the outside and they can work on the inside. And, and sometimes those two wings don't get together. They kind of complement each other. So when you think of the civil rights movement, there was a, 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 a disruptive potential there. And, and that was demonstrated very well in, in places like Birmingham and, and Selma and later in the riots in, in cities in the north. But the civil rights movement also had the ability to push and work with Lyndon Johnson so that what was going out on, out on the street could be translated into important reforms. Again, not without some compromise, but really effective 
reforms. One thing that's interests me about the Black Lives Matter movement is it was extraordinary work on the street. But I noticed after the, they learned something from the Obama administration, you had to be able to work within the clinches as well. And, uh, and civil rights activists and other organizations have figured out that they have to have some influence on government and public policy. And, and I've been quite fascinated by the uneasy but important partnership between the Biden administration and progressive movements. And they, they can have a lot of influence now because the people who supported the kind of mediating party organization have been greatly weakened. I mean, there's a position in the White House, which is liaison to these groups. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and Obama did that too. He had that too. But that liaison has been much more effective in the Biden administration. It's easier to diagnose than to prescribe Oh, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I can explain anything, Nathaniel. But it already God, happened. Don't ask me how we get out of this conundrum we're in. How do we get out of this kind of state we're in in our politics? I don't have any easy answers to that question. And and again, I don't think we can look back to a golden age and say, you know, things were better <laughs> before we had this polarization. Because there's a reason, a good reasons why we had this polarization. Now, I was active in the anti-war movement in the 1970s. I certainly don't want to go back to a situation where we, where a president can fight a war unilaterally for several years and, and 50,000. Amer- you know, I lost a lot of good friends in that war. And many of them came back terribly maimed. So I'm not um, terribly persuaded. Well, all we have to do is be more pragmatic and get along and, and, and cut deals. If you're sitting with President Biden or other leaders that have decision-making abilities around how we talk to the country, how we change the way resources are allocated, how the rules of the party system, all of these different things. Is there one or two things that you would be strongly advocating for? One thing I would do, which he has, he has done more than Obama did, is that you have to patiently work with Congress and get laws through. You can't expect to do everything unilaterally. And I was really impressed by his persistence after Joe Manchin scuttled the Build Back Better legislation. So they didn't get Build Back Better, but this Inflation Reduction Act has some really important stuff in it. It's probably the first important climate. I mean, it's going to be super instructive to see how he tries to govern with a Republican House now, which is, I mean, like Obama first tried to get legislation through very hard when he, he had did. a majority. And he got, and he got the uh, yeah. Affordable I mean, Care Act. So will, so will Biden do a different thing as president with a oppositional Congress? Yeah, I think there's a good possibility of that. And of course, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is, is pushing him very hard to do that. This began with the debt relief that he provided for students. Um, and uh, we could, ex- I fear we can expect a lot more of that. When, when, uh, when Congress, when Republicans hold the House. But if I was sitting in the White House, I'd, I'd tell him, you know, spend your time administering these very important laws <laughs> that were enacted during your first term. Because a lot of them will mean nothing if they're not administered effectively. And his temperament is, is, is um, suitable for this. He's more inclusive by nature than I think somebody like Obama or Trump were. And so I would, I would tell them, don't try to solve all the country's problems. So go down to the states and, and see what's being done down there and what can be done 
at the state and local level. I would really like the country, Nathaniel, to disenthrall itself from the presidency. Yeah, that's it's going to be a stretch because everybody's looking for the next. If I talk to people about should Biden run again, mostly they say, even though I think he's doing a very good job on balance, but they will say, well, we need somebody who can have that personal sway, have that persuasive power, motivate the people to vote for him or her, right? And he isn't rhetorically strong anymore. We can't afford that, right? Yeah, but yeah, most of my students and, so, and progressive activists I talk to, and you've heard this, they want to fight fire with fire. So the thing is not to have someone like Biden, who has some strengths, but is too old and too compromising, one foot in the old politics, but to have a left-wing version of Donald Trump, who's equally effective on Twitter, who can have maybe not mass rallies, but rally people at the grassroots level. Yeah, someone Trump. said you can only beat a right populist with a left populist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I went around my last class of the semester, I taught to the presidency in the fall, Virtually none, none of my students, even though they just said what you said, has done a pretty good job on balance, want him to be renominated. And these are important people. Say they will lack in, important young people. They're the future. Uh, say they will lose all their enthusiasm for politics if Biden runs again. So I think you're right. I think one of the things that's interesting about a consequential president is he will not only change his own party, but have an important effect on, on the other party as well. Yeah. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't think so. I mean, this is the most thorough. You have a lot of patience. This is the most, uh, I think, thorough interview I've ever <laughs> had on a podcast. I'm, I'm somewhat allergic to the term thorough because I hear it at the end of so many conversations, but I appreciate that. You're a very good interviewer. Uh, there probably are some things, but I don't know what. Yeah. Um, I did an interview with Judy Woodruff on, on the news hour. She asked me, is there any reason for hope, <laughs> whether or not I, I had any clear solutions? And I talked about um, generational change. We can, we can talk a little bit about that if you want to. But I think that is where, where there is palpable hope. Like one of the things that struck me early on in Trump was like, I, I was thinking, oh, he's teaching our young people bad lessons about character, et cetera. But what I came to learn is a lot of people learned the opposite and they said, he's a negative model. I want to go the other direction. And that's, a, that's positive. I, I do think that's right. And, and a lot of these conversations, which conservatives want to squelch over difficult things like identity, my students are perfectly comfortable. I was so impressed with how comfortable they were. Yeah. Talking. But their way of talking about it is being so weaponized outside of the class of people who have absorbed those kinds of changes. Yeah. I mean, if uh, Ron DeSantis would come to my class and see the way I, I teach. He would be, he would be sickened probably, like, <laughs> or pretend to be. He would also see that, that there's a really interesting, important conversation where people disagree. You know, my, a lot of my students um, are conservative because uh, UVA does have conservatives. Uh, and they resent the fact that all conservatives are c considered racist and they, they can have a serious conversation about these issues of identity. What worries me is the thing we were about them is the thing we were talking about before is they're entranced by this new politics, which puts so much emphasis on a kind of uncompromising 
commitments to a cause that they tend to view the other side as an existential threat to, to, the, to their way of, of, of life. It's not healthy. It's not healthy in your family. Thanksgiving's been shot in our family because I've got a brother-in-law who's an ardent Trumpist. And I have two sisters and one of them's married to this guy and the other sister was married to a, a, an African-American has a son who identifies as an African. So you can imagine they, they, they're in a, they're in a, a they're in an impasse. They won't, they, I said, life's short. We got to talk to each other. Nope. We're not, we're not going to talk to each other. So even though my students are more tolerant about the diversity and all that stuff, when it comes to politics, they see enemies on the other side and they want to fight fire with fire uh, and they're enthralled by the presidency. So that worries me a little bit. Their style of politics, uh, the kind they celebrate, yeah. is a little worrisome. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor to talk to you. Is well, it- it's been an honor to be on, be with you. No, seriously. Anything, anything else you want to say? No, I think I, I'm probably there. The, you know, I'd love to say more, but I'm I'm probably too tired to say anything. Uh, it's, well, it's it's hard to stare. From I have um, uh, vertigo, uh-huh. so it's hard for me to stare into to, to a screen for a long period of time. Zoom teaching could be a problem for me if I had to teach a long, long seminar by the after two and a half hours. I go, see, that's a long time for me to. Uh, but I've really enjoyed it, um, and I hope we get. I hope I could. I'd love to get you down here uh, to meet my. No, seriously, to meet my students, and maybe you took you could do a podcast <laughs> out here. I did. I did record one podcast in a classroom with a political consultant one time. That was fun. I'm doing a major conference on democracy and capitalism in March. Can democracy and capitalism be reconciled? I saw that you're doing that, yeah. Bernie Sanders, he's one of the inspirations for doing a conference like this. So uh, I'm going to send you, I'll send you an invitation. You're welcome to come. And you might, you know, you can just come and enjoy it. But you may meet some people there you want to talk to on your podcast. That was Professor Sid Milkus. Sid is at politics.virginia.edu slash faculty. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.